0: some fruit Um, or some toast would be good with some jam on that's fantastic yes, jam, toast perfect for second breakfast okay, what else do I need? a knife, Uh, maybe a cup of tea that would be good as well Oh, hello, oh Brilliant, lovely to see you. Uh yeah, do come in, do come in. As you can see, I'm just getting some second breakfast. It's all nice and quiet here in the hobbit hole. Uh James May, the dwarfs and a few of the hobbits they've gone out for a late morning walk. Um so we've probably got about an hour before chaos resumes, but by all means come and help yourself to some food and then join me over by the fire. I've got some well interesting thoughts to pass on like a good plateful there well done so why am i sat talking to you this morning well if you have been a friend of the show over the the last year or so or maybe you're you're part of our facebook group you will appreciate that we're not always the quickest at getting episodes out for you to listen to and that is never something that we take pride in um, you know we want to obviously throw episodes out as quickly as we can but being busy parents work commitments etc not to mention the fact that i'm over in the uk and james and Mayer in canada it's very difficult to sync up our busy sort of schedules and so often the the recording of the show, let alone you know the the editing process that poor old James has to go through to produce what always is a very good episode. You know he puts so much time into it. It's difficult, but this is an idea that we've had, and uh, we'll see where we go. I mentioned second breakfast, and that's what I'm going to start to produce. Um, a bit more frequently, hopefully, an episode called Second Breakfast. And I know May's got an idea as well. She's going to produce her own sort of mini episode as well. So the idea is that we absolutely are not going to stop recording the main show the, the Green Door podcast, the walk through the Silmarillion, that is absolutely going to continue. And we will do our very best to have that as the three of us, you know, whenever is possible. But my mini episode entitled Second Breakfast, May's mini episode, um, probably around the sort of Mayfology uh yeah sort of route which is always fascinating and you know perhaps something as i said that james would do as well it it would be additional shows that would fall into the podcast feed and help to make the the weight for the main show a little bit easier and so we feel that we're giving you um our friends you know the listeners something a little bit more regular and it also allows us to tackle other areas, other than just the Silmarillion. So that's the, the premise, that, that's sort of the idea. It does have its potential downsides. I have never ever uh, podcasted solo before. It's so much easier to record a, um, a podcast when you've got someone as good as James who is leading it. So keeping us on the straight and narrow, asking us the questions, allowing us to then sort of provide our own thoughts and our opinions about things. Um, And James is brilliant at that. He's he's very, very good at at keeping the structure. So this is going to be very new for me. And it may not work. And I think, you know, we've got to be honest, and you know if it isn't going to work if, if people are not enjoying what we're, we're trying then we'll have another look and do something else um but we're going to try and see where we go so i'll come on to what i'm planning in a bit more detail uh, but it does as i said give us the possibility the option to to take these additional mini shows wherever we want them to and i'm hoping as well that there'll be the possibility for some feedback, some input from, from you guys as well so, what is what is Second Breakfast going to be about I intend to throw episodes out all about the history of Middle Earth so, the the epic work that Tolkien's son Christopher embarked on, and I'm going to start with Volume Six, uh, called *The Return of the Shadow*. So that's where my input, I suppose, is going to is, is going to come from for the you know forthcoming weeks, months, etc., etc. And I know there's plenty of of you. Uh, you know, certainly in our Facebook group, who have far greater knowledge than me about, you know, about uh, the history of, of Middle Earth, and you know, I'm talking for example, Sarah. I know you're, you know, you're in the process of sort of reading through that, and I know there's a few others as well. So I may well be asking for some help at some point. Uh, right. So, what is the history? of Middle-earth. Well, it comprises 12 volumes, compiled, edited, and ultimately written by J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher, who is responsible for sorting through the various manuscripts and documents relating to the stories that would eventually become the Silmarillion, and, of course, his father's earlier masterpiece, my favourite book, The Lord of the Rings. It's an insight into the professor's thought process. It allows the reader to appreciate, with the benefit of hindsight, how the story has developed and changed. Strange at first, but slowly and surely, it grows into this warm, fuzzy, familiar, epic story so that there's 12 volumes published over a 13-year period from 1983 all the way to 1996 and they are as follows so in 1983 you have the book of lost tales part one followed the following year by the book of lost tales part two. You have then The Lays of Beleriand, The Shaping of Middle-earth, The Lost Road and other writings. Then in 1988, you have The Return of the Shadow. So the book that we're going to focus on to begin with. That was the first part of sort of the history of The Lord of the Rings. um, And that was followed by The Treason of Isengard, The War of the Ring. And then finally, Sauron defeated. You then have Morgoth's ring, the War of the Jewels, and then finally, the peoples of Middle-earth, which was in 1996. So, to quickly summarise, because if you're like me, you didn't really come into this much depth until later on. I mean, I certainly, I read The Hobbit, I read The Lord of the Rings, I then read The Lord of the Rings again, and The Hobbit again, and then The Lord of the Rings again, etc., etc. I never felt the need to delve deeper. And it's only really since I've started this uh, podcast with James and May that I've really become even more interested in, in the backstory and in, in the history of it all. And that's where it's fascinating to see where the professor started to where he ended up. So to summarise, the books of Lost Tales part one and two, they cover the early developments of the Silmarillion. The Lays of Beleriand largely concern two large poems. The first recounting the story of Turin, and the second, that of Beren and Luthien. Volume 4, The Shaping of Middle Earth, is as it sounds, all about the physical nature of Tolkien's world. It describes the likes of Valinor, of Middle Earth, the seas and the skies that surround, and the distant, unfamiliar eastern lands. Volume 5, The Lost Road, is a collection of various writings, including a detailed look at the Elvish language. Further, it includes an incomplete novel called The Lost Road, penned by Tolkien about a conversation he had with his great friend C.S. Lewis, and touches on space travel and time travel. So the next four volumes, as I say, They are very much a history of the Lord of the Rings um, within the history of the Middle-earth. And it's here that I'm going to start. Um, Obviously on the main show, we're working our way slowly through the Silmarillion, but I really want to get my teeth into hobbits and wizards and black riders. So that's where I'm going to begin over the coming weeks and months. We'll explore the Return of the Shadow Uh, And see how the Lord of the Rings developed from initial inception to the published word. Volumes 10 and 11 deal again with the Silmarillion. And then the final volume 12 looks at the various versions of the prologue and the appendices in Lord of the Rings. Okay, so I thought, well, how can I start this? How can we consider uh, what, basically, the the history of Middle-earth and specifically The Return of the Shadow is all about. Now I've got a paperback version um, and on the back is quite brilliant account of you know, what the book entails. So it says, The Return of the Shadow is the first part of the history of the creation of the Lord of the Rings a fascinating study of Tolkien's great masterpiece from its inception to the end of the first volume, The Fellowship of the Ring. In The Return of the Shadow, the abandoned title of the first volume of The Lord of the Rings, we see how Bilbo's magic ring evolved into the supremely dangerous ruling ring of the Dark Lord, and the precise and astonishingly unforeseen moment when a black rider first rode into the Shire. The character of the Hobbit called Trotter, afterwards Strider or Aragorn, is developed, though his true identity seems to be an insoluble problem. Frodo's companions undergo many changes of name and personality, and other major figures appear in unfamiliar guises. A sinister tree beard in league with the enemy, and a ferocious, malevolent farmer maggot. So that was brilliant. I mean, I I picked the book up and I, I read that, you know, first of all, as we all do, we look on the back or we, we flip through the first like page to see, see what's in there. And that made me want to read it. Um, You know, as soon as you start hearing about black riders and then Hobbits of different names, etc etc and you know, Sinister Treebeard. It just made me want to pick the book up and see what it was about. Now the next thing is an extract from a letter that the professor himself actually sent to WH Auden on the seventh of june nineteen fifty five. And on the inside sort of a couple of pages of, of this book, it has a quote from this letter. And again, I love this. I think we may even have, have mentioned this in one of our, our main, main shows a while back. But Tolkien writes, I met a lot of things on the way that astonished me. Tom Bombadil I knew already, but I had never been to Brie. Strider, sitting in the corner at the inn, was a shock and I had no more idea who he was than had Frodo. The mines of Moria had been a mere name, and of Lothlorien no word had reached my mortal ears till I came there. Far away I knew there were the horse lords on the confines of an ancient kingdom of men, but Van Gorn Forest was an unforeseen adventure. I had never heard of the house of Aeol, nor of the stewards of Gondor, most disquietingly of all saruman had never been revealed to me and i was as mystified as frodo at gandalf's failure to appear on september the 22nd perfect summed up it basically says tolkien discovered these things as part of the process of writing the lord of the rings and i think that's amazing i love the idea that these ideas have you know popped up throughout the process and as we'll hopefully demonstrate as we'll see as we go through this the um, the initial thought to what was actually published there are connections all the way through in some cases and in others there are these big surprises and i think that's really exciting and hopefully you'll agree okay so what about HarperCollins? So these are the publishers to the Special Collector's Edition, and they write, J.R.R. Tolkien is famous the world over for his unique literacy creation, exemplified in The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion. What is less well-known, however, is that he also produced a vast amount of further material that greatly expands upon the mythology and numerous stories of Middle-earth, and which gives added life to the thousand-year war between the elves and the evil spirit Morgoth and his terrifying lieutenant Sauron. It was to this enormous task of literacy construction that his youngest son and literary heir, Christopher, applied himself to produce the monumental an endlessly fascinating series of 12 books, The History of Middle-Earth. Okay, and some of you in our Facebook group, you may have seen a post that I made a few days ago where I said, guys, if you were asked to write a short review about home, The History of Middle-Earth, what would you write to make people want to pick the books up? And I had a few responses and I thought I'd share them with you. So Chuck responded, nice. I'm starting book one this weekend. So Chuck, hopefully this is right up your street. Ashik, perfectly put, it's a journey. Couldn't agree more. Andrea, she said, if you are bored with quantum physics and the evolution of field theory, and you even know the interferences of high energy elementary particles by name, then it's time to go one step further. Start using your brain. Read the history of (laughs) Middle-earth. Which is brilliant, really like that one. And then finally Luke he said if you want to know more about Tolkien's process as a writer or the stories that lay in the background of Middle Earth the history of Middle Earth is the place to go. I usually recommend starting with the middle volumes sometimes called the history of the Lord of the Rings because it gives people a sense of what the series is like but uses a text that they are usually familiar with. And that, Luke, is exactly why we're starting with Volume 6. The Lord of the Rings is by far, in my view, the um, most well-known book. You could argue The Hobbit, obviously, as well. But personally, for me, I just want to get to The Lord of the Rings. This whole process, The Silmarillion, is fascinating. The Hobbit will be great fun, but The Lord of the Rings is is the main book in my view and that's why I think Luke's you know hit the nail on the head there if you start with something that is so familiar if you know that book which anyone who's listened to this podcast I can only imagine that you do know that book really really well you're going to get more from volume 6, volume 7, volume 8, volume 9 um, of the history of Middle Earth because you'll know the text as it ends up so well that you'll see the connections and you'll find them fascinating as a result so i agree luke let's start with volume six and we can always go back and do the other ones and by that time hopefully we'll have completed the really okay so volume six the return of the shadow otherwise known as part one of the history of the lord of the rings as i've touched on i have a 2015 paperback version. Uh, it's got a wonderful illustration on the front of uh, Gandalf returns to Bag End by John Howe and it was first published in Great Britain by Unwin Hyman in 1988. Now the history of Middle Earth, it's a step up. There are even you know, established Tolkien fans who haven't read or uh, digested these 12 volumes and that's because they can be an effort you know th- this really can, as Andrea joked, this can really test your brain and your willpower to sort of get through. It involves a lot of um, accepting what's what's being written and then it being changed straight away. You know, this is demonstrating what the Professor did over the course of writing his Lord of the Rings and the various phases of that. And it can be very alien in places. You know, there's, there's characters that at first reading don't fit at all with the ones that you know. So you do have to sort of wait for those connections to fall. But hopefully doing this bit by bit... Will we'll get there? Um, I had to order my book. It actually uh, was bought on the internet and was, was posted down because you go into local bookshops, and I know um, this was a question uh, that Jeff Lasala mentioned a long time ago now about you know how uh, how popular. Lord of the Rings is, you know, where we live in our, like, local communities. And I tried to buy these books in, you know, the bookshops. Quite well-known, you know, brands uh, for people in the UK, you know, your Waterstones, etc. And I couldn't see them on the the shop floor, and so I had to ask one of the um, the people working there. And the response was, oh, we we don't we don't keep them at the shop because you know they're very rarely bought you can order them that's not a problem but we need our you know spaces on the shelves for books that actually will be bought and you know people aren't buying on a regular basis these histories so even amongst Tolkien fans there is a large group that probably haven't read these books uh, and I count myself as one of them. I've just started to read volume 6 so it's, it's a, it is it's a step up it's difficult to uh, di- digest all of the added detail I think. So what we're gonna do today is not start by jumping straight into chapter 1 we're gonna look at the foreword and what that says so in 1957 J.R.R. Tolkien sold the manuscripts and typescripts of Lord of the Rings to Marquette University in Milwaukee, America, uh, after publication, and alongside those of The Hobbit, Farmer Giles of Ham, and Mr. Bliss. However, it took approximately a year longer for those of the Lord of the Rings to actually arrive across the pond, um, because the professor had held them back, Uh, in an attempt to sort annotate and date uh, the paperwork relating to the Lord of the Rings now Christopher confirms his father was actually unsuccessful as they apparently arrived in 1958 brackets in no order and in no order and certainly incomplete as well unbeknownst to all until Tolkien wrote in 1965 to the Director of Libraries at Marquette University, confirming that he was still in possession of written material that belonged with the earlier documents that he had sold to them. He said he would send them over um, when he was ready, but unfortunately he never did, never got around to it. And they ended up being passed to his son Christopher at his death. Now, what then followed, as we all know Christopher, started to plow all of his time into sorting out the various paperwork that his dad had left specifically certainly at first to do with the Silmarillion because that was what Tolkien had tried wanted to have published all the way through you know before lord of the rings was was uh, written he was really pushing for the Silmarillion to be you know the story that Uh, should be the next one on the conveyor belt. Now, similar to a certain great ring, the missing papers passed out of knowledge and legend, or at least until Christopher, who had been at that point concentrating upon the events over in Valinor and Balerion instead of Hobbiton and the Shire, rediscovered them. He had already published, by this point, The Book of Lost Tales, parts one and two, and was about to publish uh, volume three, The Lays of Beleriand, when he realised that his epic life work would also extend, eventually, to include a history of the writings of the Lord of the Rings. Now, the missing papers largely concern the earliest phases of composition although some chapters show a very joined up process from early thought to published version in the next episode we'll hopefully demonstrate this best by looking at the many various versions that Tolkien produced for chapter one a long expected party now as we um as we discuss this, as we discuss the foreword, I am going to quote at various points uh, from the foreword itself or maybe some of the letters of, of the professor, because I think that they basically say what I want to say. You know, they, they say it better than anything that I could do. So there will be, there will be these, these quotes that I will sort of disperse through through this podcast. And the first one is something that Christopher writes as follows. I do not, of course, know how it came about that these particular manuscripts came to be left out of the consignment to Marquette. But I think that an explanation in general terms can be found readily enough. Immensely prolific as my father was, brackets, I found not being able to use a pen or pencil as defeating as the loss of her beak would be to a hen, he wrote to Stanley Unwin in 1963 when suffering from an ailment in his right arm. Close brackets. Constantly revising, reusing, beginning again, but never throwing any of his writing away, his papers became inextricably complex, disorganised and dispersed. It does not seem likely that at the time of the transfer to Marquette, he would have been greatly concerned with or have had any precise recollection of the earlier drafts. Some of them supplanted and overtaken as much as 20 years before and no doubt they had long since been set aside, forgotten and buried. However this may be, it is self-evidently desirable that the separated manuscripts should be joined together again and the whole corpus preserved in one place. This must have been my father's intention at the time of the original sale, and accordingly, the manuscripts at present, in my keeping, will be handed over to Marquette University. So you can see that Christopher really believes that his dad's way of writing this story and the copious amounts of paperwork that were the results of his, you know, his, his method um, spread over so many years and in so many different ways these papers did get lost and they did get separated from the previous paperwork that had been sent over to to Marquette University. Now a great deal of The Return of the Shadow is actually found in this missing paperwork. Uh, now there is some overlap, and Christopher has had to liaise closely with Marquette University to piece together the various stages for um, certain chapters. And akin to, let's say, the great sundering of the elves as they marched across Beleriand uh, over in the Silmarillion, Tolkien's manuscripts also separated from one another. And it's thanks to the amazing work of Christopher, Christopher Tolkien, over the many years, that we now have this incredible behind-the-scenes dissection of his father's huge legendarium. So we'll start our stroll through the history of the Lord of the Rings by following the story through the initial first phase, beginning in Hobbiton and then journeying along the road to Rivendell before heading back all the way to the beginning and considering the second phase of Tolkien's work, and then the third phase. So as the foreword states, briefly, the writing proceeded in a series of waves, or, as I have called them in this book, phases. The first chapter was itself reconstituted three times before the Hobbits ever left Hobbiton, but the story then went all the way to Rivendell before the impulse failed. My father then started again from the beginning, brackets, the second phase, and then, brackets, the third phase. And as new narrative elements and new names and relations among the characters appeared, they were written into previous drafts at different times. Parts of a text were taken out and used elsewhere. Alternative versions were incorporated into the same manuscript so that the story could be read in more than one way, according to the directions given. To determine the sequence of these exceedingly complex movements, with demonstrable correctness at all points, is scarcely possible. One or two dates that my father wrote in are insufficient to give more than very limited assistance and references to the progress of the work in his letters are unclear and hard to interpret. Differences of script can be very misleading, thus the determination of the history of composition has to be based very largely on clues afforded by the evolution of names and motives in the narrative itself. But in this, there is every possibility of going astray through mistaking the relative dates of additions and alterations. Exemplification of these problems will be found throughout the book. I do not suppose for one moment that I have succeeded in determining the history correctly at every point. Indeed, there remain several cases where the evidence appears to be contradictory, and I can offer no solution. The nature of the manuscripts is such that they will probably always admit of differing interpretations. But the sequence of composition that I propose, after much experimentation with alternative theories, seems to me to fit the evidence very much the best. I think it's clear that Tolkien was quite the scattergun in his note taking, you know, a copious note taker and maker, um, very much thoughts to paper so as not to forget the idea that he just had. Um, I can't even begin to imagine the task that Christopher, you know, had uh, before embarking upon it. You know, every note, every scribble, every repetition that his father had made, um, it all had to be ordered, it had to be uh, deciphered, examined, understood. And in some cases, as Christopher says, you know, even then, even to him, to his son, it's not always possible to understand what his father actually meant or had done so if he can't do it nobody could so every draft of a chapter produced by the professor was then superseded by another but always reliant upon the earlier effort for understanding and relevance the opening chapter a long expected party consisted of six main efforts and then a couple of aborted uh, openings as well. Christopher writes A complete presentation of all the material for this one chapter would almost constitute a book in itself, not to speak of a mass of repetition or near repetition. Now, Christopher uh, Tolkien talks of trying to mirror the difficulties his father encountered in the initial years writing Lord of the Rings. He wanted to really emphasize and show that. You know every dead end or wrong turn that his dad had made, the doubts, the indecisions, the unpickings, the restructurings, and the false starts. Um, he wanted to demonstrate how his father, over time, had changed the significance of events, the identity of characters, um, whilst also maintaining the scenes themselves, and in some cases, the words uttered. You know are consistent throughout, not necessarily from the same character, um, and. This is evidenced superbly by the back history relating to the much loved Pippin and you know Fatty. And this will hopefully be be shown very well when we look at the next the next sort of chapter in later episodes um, as those particular characters sort of spring out from the pages of the Lord of the Rings eventually, but they're not necessarily there at the start. So, where does the title the return of the shadow derive from so christopher has chosen you know the title of this this volume six directly from evidence that his dad intended to at one point call what would later become the fellowship of the ring the return of the shadow and in a letter He wrote on the 8th of August 1953 to Raynard Unwin. Um, Because Raynard had told Tolkien that it would be desirable to have a separate title for each of the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings, the professor wrote back and said, I wrote in rather a hurry in the spring and did not take a copy of my letter of the 24th of March. If I could have it back or a copy, it would help me. I am, however, opposed to having separate titles for each of the volumes, and no overall title. The Lord of the Rings is a good overall title, I think, but it is not applicable especially to Volume 1. Indeed, it is probably least suited to that volume, except possibly in the matter of cost. I cannot see the objection to The Lord of the Rings 1, The Return of the Shadow. The Lord of the Rings 2, The Shadow Lengthens. The Lord of the Rings 3, The Return of the King. So you can see that something as perfect as The Fellowship of the Ring, which we all know and love, it originally was going to be The Return of the Shadow. Uh, And hence Christopher deciding to call Volume 6 that appropriate title. In fact, letter 140, so written on the 17th of August, 1953, which would have been some nine days later. He says, it was extremely kind of you to come and see me and clear things up. It was only after I'd seen you onto the bus that I recollected that you had in the end, never had any beer or other refreshment. I am sorry. Very much below Hobbit standards, my behaviour, I am afraid. I now suggest, as titles of the volumes, under the overall title, The Lord of the Rings. Volume 1, The Fellowship of the Ring. Volume 2, The Two Towers. Volume 3, The War of the Ring. Brackets. Or, if you still prefer that, The Return of the King. Close brackets. The Fellowship of the Ring will do, I think, and fits well with the fact that the last chapter of the volume is the breaking of the Fellowship. So, very soon after, that idea, that title, had gone. It had changed. Uh, the Professor had re-evaluated, had made probably copious notes in those nine days, and Suddenly, we have what we all know and love as the fellowship of the ring. So as mentioned previously, the first phase sees the story move from Hobbiton to Rivendell. Although the professor didn't tend to, at this stage, title any of his chapters. You know, his notes were a bit more vague. Now, in fact, the ultimate division of the story into recognized chapters shifted considerably over time. Uh, Hence Christopher deciding to provide more descriptive titles to Volume 6 of the History of Middle-earth, such as From Hobbiton to the Woody End, or Of Gollum and the Ring. And we'll see these as we move forward in, in later episodes. So finally, how to connect The Lord of the Rings with the earlier publication of The Hobbit, written many years previously in 1937? And I think it it certainly reacted, uh, The Lord of the Rings, to the events of The Hobbit. But this connection, as we'll see, had never originally been intended. So Christopher remarks that his father's view, opinion, uh, had been expressed a few times, but most accurately, in the course of a long letter that he wrote to Christopher Bretherton in July of 1964. It's actually a part of letter number 257, if you want to check it out. And he writes, I returned to Oxford in January 1926, and by the time The Hobbit appeared, 1937, this matter of the elder days, was in coherent form. The Hobbit was not intended to have anything to do with it. I had the habit while my children were still young of inventing stories for their private amusement. The Hobbit was intended to be one of them. It had no necessary connection with the mythology, but naturally became attracted towards this dominant construction in my mind, causing the tale to become larger and more heroic as it proceeded. Even so, it could really stand quite apart, except for the references, unnecessary though they gave an impression of historical depth, to the fall of Gondolin, the branches of the Elfkin, and the quarrel of King Thingol, Luthien's father with the dwarfs. The magic ring was the one obvious thing in The Hobbit that could be connected with my mythology. To be the burden of a large story, it had to be of supreme importance. I then linked it with the, originally, quite casual reference to the necromancer, whose function was hardly more than to provide a reason for Gandalf going away and leaving Bilbo and the dwarfs to fend for themselves, which was necessary for the tale. From the Hobbit are also derived the matter of the dwarfs, during their prime ancestor and Morio and Elrond. The passage in chapter 3 relating him to the half-elven of the mythology was a fortunate accident due to the difficulty of constantly inventing good names for new characters. I gave him the name Elrond casually, but as this came from the mythology, Elros and Elrond, the two sons of Erendel, I made him half-elven. Only in the Lord was he identified with the son of Arendelle and so the great-grandson of Luthien and Beryn, a great power and a ring-holder. So the Hobbit was never intended to be a part of the greater mythology other than the subtle mentions, you know, as as stated above. And Christopher summarises the importance of the Hobbit... In the history of the evolution of Middle-earth lies then, at this time, in the fact that it was published and that a sequel to it was demanded. As a result, from the nature of The Lord of the Rings as it evolved, The Hobbit was drawn into Middle-earth and transformed it. But, as it stood in 1937, it was not a part of it. Its significance for Middle-earth lies in what it would do, not in what it was. So there we go. That is a brief look through the foreword to volume six, The Return of the Shadow. Hopefully it also gives you an idea of, of where we we hope to run with it and you know next episode I'll have a look at what is in the first chapter and how the first chapter of the Lord of the Rings developed from the initial thoughts and notes that the professor had made I do hope you've enjoyed it please let us know let me let me have some feedback um, as to as to what you think uh, I'm really hoping as I said to to make it something that we can uh, all get involved in, uh, and that you can have some, some input into these shows as well. So much like the message I put into the Facebook group, if you start to see messages again like that, there's probably a reason for it. I do want to say a massive, thank you, to James and May, because without them, you know I wouldn't be sat here podcasting, and. Um, also to emphasize again we are going to continue working our way through the Silmarillion this will only ever be a separate mini show the main one will always be the three of us but hopefully this will just give a few more uh, shows in your in your podcast feed uh, all under the umbrella of the Green Door podcast so before I go I would like to just mention if you're not already, do come and check us out in our Facebook group. We've got a wonderful group of friends in there that, that all interact and it is just really good fun. So come check us out there and also on Twitter as well. There's a, there's a good sort of following on Twitter and again, social media is really important to sort of keep growing the show and um, growing the connections that, we, that you know we've made already. So next episode we'll look at the first phase of a long expected party and uh yeah, I can't wait to do this again. Alright, that's second breakfast.